This is exactly right. The best thing anybody can do for themselves is to take a chance and try something. Because even if you fail, you showed up for yourself. And that's like such a positive thing. And, you know, and then, and then as you get older, and this was the lesson for me as I got older, was not only to like pick yourself up and keep going, but to look back and try to learn the lessons. Like what, what can I take away from that that will make it easier next time? Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is failure is not, not an option. Alternative Parenting Paths with our guest, Patrick Hines. Patrick is the author of Failure is Not, Not an Option, How the Chubby Gay Son of a Jesus-Obsessed Lesbian Found Love, Family, and Podcast Success, and a bunch of other stuff. He is also co-creator and host of True Crime Obsessed, one of the most popular true crime podcasts in the world with over 200 million downloads and counting. TCO has been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, Newsweek, and Vulture. It tours live shows internationally and in April 2022 became the first podcast to play live on Broadway. Building on the success of TCO in 2020, Patrick launched the Obsessed Network with his husband, Steve Tipton. And also in 2022, the network launched Obsessed Fest, a terribly fun annual convention of podcast enthusiasts and creators. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I didn't realize I did so many things. Look at me. You do even more than that. I cut there was way more that I had to like get in there. All of the other yeah. podcasts that you have co-created. Um, yes. So, so many. And I just have to say, in reading your book, which is freaking hilarious, I was laughing out loud. <laughs> and I just have to say, I feel like you are living so authentically. You're, like you are... Okay, I, I remember thinking in college as I was having some struggles, just thinking, I just want to find a job where I get paid to be myself. And I'm like, uh-huh. dude, I feel like you are getting paid. And it's not, <laughs> not all about the money, but you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, to, you're yeah. getting, you're getting to be yourself. Yep. You know, thanks for saying that. I, as a podcaster, you know, th- that was a kind of a gamble. Like when I, when I started making podcasts back in 2013, 2014, And I knew, like, I know what I sound like. I know what I look like. I know what my screechy laugh is like. I kind of didn't know if there would be a place for me in the, in the world of podcasting, which was this world that I had like stumbled upon that I really loved, that I really wanted to be a part of. I really wanted to find my way into. And I, I don't know. I was like, there's, there's just no point in doing this if I'm not going to just be exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. And thank goodness 
you know, people seem to like it and relate to it. Uh, I would say so. Yes. Crush, <laughs> crushing it. You guys are crushing it. So I want to back up with this theme of authenticity because um, in your book, you know, you, it's a memoir. Like you really talk about the story of your life. And there's so many poignant moments where I felt part of like the 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 theme throughout is besides, of course, which we'll talk about, like, don't give up and fail, yeah. fail, fail, is you just being unabashedly yourself. And when you found out maybe at times you weren't being and you were doing what we all do is try to fit in or pose, you're like, screw that. Like, that's yep. not that's not me. I'm going to be me. And so, let, like, tell folks about the red jacket in and yep. the elbow grease story, because I feel like <laughs> that sets the tone for your tenacity and resilience and being yourself in a micro world that would not necessarily accept you, but yeah, but did. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's so interesting because my, my older sister's boyfriend at the time was this guy named Joey. And you know, this was, I was, I think thir 14 years old. I'm now 45. Joey reached out to me on Facebook last week because he found the book and saw that oh, he was in wow. it. He couldn't believe it. It was so wild. But he was this really cool kid. He was just like kind of cool. And he worked at this kitchen where he was, a, he was like a prep cook. And I needed a job. And he asked me if I wanted to be a dishwasher there. And he got me the job. And, you know, restaurant kitchens are really intimidating places. And they're very, they can be very macho. And I've worked in many at this point. They all have been very macho. It's almost all men. It's almost all straight men. You'll get like the ladies and the gay waiters and all that in the sort of the front of the house that'll come and go as like bit parts. But if you're in the kitchen all day, you're around like a bunch of like dudes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and there's this like chubby gay son of a Jesus obsessed lesbian. I was nervous, <laughs> but I really wanted the job. I, I really am a hard worker. I'm not afraid of being hot and sweaty. I'm not afraid of getting dirty. And you know, the, they kind of threw me in on day one. And you know, one of the... <laughs> One of the things you have to do as a dishwasher at the Red Jacket Inn on Cape Cod, it probably still is the same thing to this day, you have to clean the poaching pan. What is the poaching pan, you ask? During the breakfast service, there's one little pan. It's a pan that's kind of a cross between a pot and a, and a pan, and they fill it with water, and they boil the water, and they, uh, they poach eggs in it all morning for whatever entree needs poached eggs. And it runs for, you know, the five hours of the breakfast service. And by the end of it, it's just like a charred black bottom. And so as sort of like an initiation test, they gave me the poaching pan and just said, like, go to it. And I was like, uh, okay. And you start to scrub and nothing comes off and you start nope. to scrub and nothing comes off. And, and I really thought that I, that I misheard them that like this pan was just had a black bottom <laughs> and that I was, it was clean now. And I, I asked them and the guy who was training me, this guy, Oh God, what did I call him in the book? I can't remember the name I gave him, but he was this very cute guy that went to my, he was like older than me. And, um, he was like, Oh, you just gotta, you know, it's, you, you can clean it. You just need to use elbow grease. And I was like, Oh, of course. Yeah. I yes. knew there was some like magic cleaning solution that you hadn't told me about, or I didn't, where exactly do we keep the elbow grease? And this guy looked at me, he thought I was joking. And he was like, you, 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 
you, you're looking for the elbow grease? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, I don't remember. So he sent me to the guy, the head chef in the kitchen to ask him where the elbow grease was. He was in now in on the joke. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Ask those guys over there. They're all in on it. So they send me on this wild goose chase. For the elbow grease. Looking for the elbow grease. And I'm, I'm pulling things out of cabinets. And I'm thinking, I'm going to make myself so valuable. I'm going to find this cleaning agent that they're going to be so glad that they sent me on this search. And I'm looking and looking. And there, I can't figure out what they're laughing at. And probably 25, 30 minutes in, one of the waitresses walks up behind me and she just whispers. She goes, they're messing with you. It's an expression. <laughs> and I say in the book, like, I, I don't know. I can't explain why I'd never heard the expression elbow grease, but I really hadn't. And I realized in that moment, like, oh my God, this is like a big joke. They're all laughing at me. And I realized I kind of had two options. I could either be humiliated mm -hmm. and start to cry and storm out, which was my instinct, or I could recognize that, like, this is actually really funny. Yeah. Like, how dumb am I to not know what elbow grease is? And this is hilarious. And they pulled a prank on me. And why not, like, just be in on the joke? Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, but I don't want to let them down. They're expecting a big humiliation payoff. So I pretended to be, like, really dejected. And I walked back over to the sink. And I just grabbed a scrubber. And I turned the water. And I scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. And I cleaned it, much to everybody's surprise. And and that was sort of, I survived my initiation. And I ended up working at that job for like eight years or right. something. It was like right. one of the best formative experiences of my life. Well, and I also remember you saying, instead of crying, you also let out like a belt, like you laughed. And laughed. They, they saw you go with it and also yes. like get serious about it. But I, I feel like there's these, this, pattern of resilience throughout the now funny stories and blunders yeah. and you're know, like it's easy to look back and laugh yes and um and but you 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 laugh and you don't give up like you, you just yeah, keep, you keep going it's one of those things where like one of the best things that could have happened to me was I was born incredibly poor. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom was the single mother of four kids and my dad never paid child support. So in a lot of instances, I didn't have any choice. It was like, right. I, you know, I needed a job. I needed to work. And not that all the stories are about work, but it was like when you, when you are born into like not the best of circumstances, you have two choices. Really. It's, you can sort of like, you can sort of wallow or you can try to like pull yourself up by the bootstraps, like they say. And I've always been a, I get it from my mother. I have a really positive outlook. I have a pretty mm -hmm. shiny disposition. I always think things can be better. I can do better. And so it's always just kind of like, it doesn't always feel like it in the moment. There are certainly moments in the book that are hilarious because they're humiliating. Yeah. And like, this was an example of like, in the moment, I was like, all right, I got this. I, this is really funny. I want this job. I'm going to be in on the joke. And there are other times when you you just feel like it's the end of the world. And, right. you, you know, and it right. takes some time to be able to zoom out and be like, okay. Yes. Like I've said in the past, going through, like, the best thing anybody can do for themselves is to take a chance and try something. Because even if you fail, you showed up for yourself and that's like such a positive thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then, and then as you get older, and this was the lesson for me as I got older, was not only to like pick yourself up and keep going, but to look back and try to learn the lessons. Like what, mm -hmm. what can I take away from that that will right. make it easier next time, you know? Right, right, right. 
like you don't know anything about being an executive assistant whatsoever. <laughs> no. Nothing. No, Nothing. and I knew that I would be terrible at it. Yeah, yeah. And you just you like leaned in. You like lean in. I love it. Okay, yeah. not to go on that story at this point. Um, you mentioned your mom and the connection with your mom's disposition and your disposition. And that's what I was totally getting from the from the book, like just her, and especially as you tell more and more about her as the the book goes on. Yeah. And so I was, I mean, what an amazing woman who like leans into life. And so she comes out to you and your siblings when you guys are teenagers. So two questions about that. Where, yeah. were, where were you in your own journey and awareness And, and how has she, what did she model for you being a gay man and living your true authentic self? That's such a good question. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I want to say my sister was like in eighth grade. So I would have been like in fourth grade. So I wasn't even a teenager yet. I definitely wasn't like any kind of sexual being, but Mm -hmm. I, I remember, you know, I, I, the, the thing about my mother, my mom came out in the, early nineties, maybe even the late, like late eighties, 89, 90. And my mom, and it, like later as, as an adult, you know, my mom had this great job that she loved. She, she was, uh, she worked at a place called housing assistance corporation where they, they helped find housing in the nineties for, uh, people with HIV and AIDS who were like legally discriminated against. And, mm. you know, the unhoused population on Cape Cod, like in general, there's like a major problem there. Um, and she loved her job. And so I knew a lot of the people that she worked with for years and years. And when I was later as an adult, I remember my mom's friend, Anne telling me that they worked together. And the first day on the job, my mom walked in and my mom isn't like an aggressive, assertive person, but she walked in. And when she was being introduced to the office, my mother said, and I'm a lesbian. And I'd like to know right now if that's going to be a problem for anybody. (laughs) And like, my mom was just like, so out and so authentically herself. And, and, you know, my mom was more of like what you might back in the day have called like a lipstick lesbian. You know, she didn't necessarily look like what you would, what you think of when you stereotypically think of a lesbian. So she, she could have passed if she wanted to, and she didn't want to, she wanted to be out. She wanted to talk about it. She wanted people to meet her girlfriends. My mom, like, I mean, I detail it in the book. My mom was a pretty sexual person and like didn't hide it from us as kids. And I think all of that had a very positive impact on me as a budding gay person. So that when I came out, I mean, I was so lucky to have a gay parent because when I came out, it never occurred to me to be ashamed. It never mm-hmm. occurred to me to, I mean, it occurred to me to want to hide it. And this is kind of like a funny thing because I, my mother was the last person I ever really came out to because I could not handle the idea of the everyday pride parade, which I knew that it would be. I'm like, mom, we cannot have a pride parade every time I walk into the living room. Like, so she's like, I didn't tell her because I was afraid of being over accepted, you know? Yeah. yeah. Even a, though it was a like a terrible problem to have, by the way. I right? know, I yes. know. It's like yes. such a point of privilege yeah. that, like, I know. Yeah. yeah. And I was like such a flamboyant, flaming homosexual teenager that, like, of course she knew, but she kindly waited <laughs> until I announced it to her. But it was just, I was so lucky to have that kind of visibility and, you know, and to be the kid of a parent who was unapologetically out. Mm-hmm. It was so brave. It's so, it's so hard to remember how brave that was was of her. Mm-hmm. And I, yes, and I was thinking to like to have to announce 
um, I'm a lesbian. Let me know if you have a problem with that now. Yeah. Um, you know, th- us living on the east, on the coasts with much yeah. more progressive area. I'm like, wow, that fortunately seems like a long time ago. And then I also think, unfortunately, there are still parts of our country where there are tons of discrimination. And yeah, people um, are still living in the shadows. People are mm-hmm. still hiding, you know, like, and with all of these, you know, bans on drag queens and trans people. I mean, it's like, it, you know, it was hard enough to live through like the, the Bush years of like, the, you know, the administration trying to amend the constitution to make marriage, a, you know, a union between a man and a woman. And I was young then. And, and, and like how, how much that made me feel un-American and like not part of like society. And now it's pockets. It's certainly not mm-hmm. as broad as it was, but it, you're absolutely right. We are, I've never known fear as a gay person, which is, I think for a lot of gay people, mm-hmm. a wild thing to hear. Mm-hmm. And I also was, it's find your word of privilege. So interesting. And for all of us to think about all the different types of privilege. So here you're like, you're yeah. born poor. Like, yes. I mean, you, like you had a poor socioeconomic upbringing, which yes. really informed your mindset, um, which I think your resilient mindset, like, yeah, Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. Well, I yeah. got to do that. I got to put up with this. And at the same time, so that's not uh, economic privilege. But for you to be able to say, man, you were raised with privilege with your mom who was so yeah. accepting. I know. It yeah. really is like gay privilege. You know what I mean? It, like yeah. it was when I went, it was, and in, in some ways it held me back a little bit because when I went to college, I went to Emerson College in Boston, mm-hmm. very liberal, drag queens in the dining hall. Like, but I was ready to like find my husband. I was ready to get my MRS, you know, yes, like yeah. it was, I was yeah. ready. Mm-hmm. And so many of my fellow gay classmates were just coming out. Mm-hmm. So like I was so advanced in my homosexuality. You had a doctorate by then. You were <laughs> yeah. like, you were already on your doctorate. Yes. 100%. Yes. And yeah. it was frustrating and it was hard to like have relationships and even some friendships. Cause it was just like, you know, I was just encountering people who were coming out for the first time. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that's really important because when we even, when we think of all the privileges and we think of, you know, of people who are hiding, they have financial privilege and yet they're hiding from being able yeah. to be who they are because of geogra- geography, religion, family values. And what do you, so what, what do you say to those people who might be listening? You know, I think the best thing that you can do if you're living in a in a situation like that is to find community in any way that you can. Mm-hmm. You know, to find the people that you can be your true self with, even if not all the time. I mean, I say, and I mean it, stay safe, do what you need to do to be safe. Um, but find your people, even like if you, if you can't find a person who loves and accepts you right within your area, if you live in a really rural area and there aren't a lot of people around, take to the internet, girl, like get, you know, get in Facebook groups, get in whatever it is and find Mm -hmm. community because that is, you need it. You, you Mm -hmm. absolutely need community if you can't be your authentic self in your everyday life. Yeah. Really important. Really important. So there's a there, there's a lot of stories which we might go back to, um, and I just have to I have this image of you walking through a glass door <laughs> in Spain yes. to 
I telling your husband, I want to have a child. Like, yes. this, you know, like, how did that, like, did it not, it bangs some, something into your brain or yeah. something? Well, yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah, and yeah. It, it really is a true, like, such a true visual, truthful moment. Because when <laughs> Steve and I met, we both kind of prided ourselves on not wanting to have kids. And it was so great. We were, I say in the book, we were going to be like first tra- first class travel gays and just take trips and be fabulous. And I remember like w- I made this joke on one of our trips that we weren't going to have kids. We were going to have vacations and name them. And Steve thought yep. that was so funny. Mm-hmm. And I remember the moment I made that joke, I felt, and this, I, this is not a real thing for many people. I'm not trying to put it on anybody else, but just for me, I felt my biological clock burst into life, you know? Mm. And I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm like 32 and I just, just, I said out loud, I don't want kids and my husband like loves it. And it's, and I, and ever since that moment, I started to think like, do I want a kid? I think I want a kid. And I was kind of having this conversation to myself and maybe it was a year later or, or whatever, however long later it was, we were on this trip in Barcelona and it had all gone so wrong because we were going to Paris and Barcelona and we were traveling on a budget and we I, we put all our credit cards in my wallet and then I lost my wallet and we were broke and we were waiting for my debit card to be shipped from... It was just a nightmare. We were, had no money and we were at this like little sandwich shop in, in Barcelona and I got up to like leave <laughs> and I waved goodbye to the cute sandwich guy and bang, like I walked into what I thought was like an open door, but it was a closed door. And I walked into it so hard, the whole thing just shattered. Oh my God. I walked and and it was like a true moment of like, am I dead? Am I, am I made of glass? Am I, what, 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 cause there wasn't pain. I didn't, you know, I got a couple of scratches, but I wasn't like in pain or, and then I realized what happened and I was just utterly humiliated yeah and all these people sitting in this cafe like what did that idiot just no one got up to help me my husband is trying to like brush the glass off me yeah and Uh. we go and we sit down on the bench and i just burst into tears it had been a bad vacation and now i was embarrassed and also i want a kid and i just want to say it out loud i just want a kid and it was like steve had been reading my mind and he just said me too wow and it was yeah, it was just like a really cathartic, let it all out moment. And a then it was like... A literal life-shattering moment. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. It, it's like the metaphor writes itself, which is so mm-hmm. wild. And then the journey begins. As, a, yeah. we talk, as we were talking about privilege, wow, okay. The, um, how difficult it is to adopt how ex- or before no no before how expensive it is to try to make children right yes. to create children yes and then all the barriers that go into adoption and yeah. would you say discrimination yes well? oh for sure yes. absolutely absolutely right. yes which yeah, led you, you know, to your pet with your very um you well i want to say unique it's not unique but it's not something that people are really aware of Yes, because it doesn't really exist. It's so funny. Like, so what you're speaking of is the foster to adopt 
program, which isn't really a thing. It's so interesting because, yeah, Steve and I could not afford traditional adoption. We couldn't afford surrogacy. And I said in my original draft of the book, you know, we we didn't have the plumbing to make a kid for free. And my editor, who was a, uh, a cis woman, was like, uh, 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 no, it's yeah. not free even for those of us who could make them. And I was like, oh, yeah. my God, you're right. Yeah. Learning every day. Right. Um, and, you know, so but we we just you know, we didn't want to save and save and save. We were 34 and we wanted a kid like as soon as possible. And in New York, we had been seeing all these signs for like foster care or foster to adopt, like all over the subway. And I was like, foster to adopt. Okay. My, my image of that was that there were babies in the foster care system that for whatever reason had either been abandoned by their parents or had been freed for adoption in another way. And you're signing up to foster them into an ad- adoptive situation. And we we went to all the orientations and we were pretty quickly disabused of that idea. You know, we were told from the beginning that the purpose of foster care is always to reunite kids with their birth parents or another family member. And that in some instances that isn't possible, in which case the, the foster parents can begin the adoption process. And we were like, Oh, it was, it felt a little bit bait and switchy because on the posters, it's like couples holding babies and it says like foster to adopt. And you kind of like, there's no fine print. It's just like, call this number if you want to come in for an orientation. And so we were like, all right, you know, but even still, even knowing that we were kind of like, we'll just be honest in our process and say, we are looking for a baby and we're looking for a baby that has a high likelihood of being cleared for adoption because the process is kind of long. You have to go through like a 10 week training course and then you have to do all the home studies and you have to get licensed and it's, you know, it takes a long time and you're, you, once you pick your agency that you're going to work with, you have a relationship with the people. And so we had made it clear from the beginning that we were looking for that kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then like we were told it could be a long time. Once we turned in our paperwork to, to get our licenses, it could be six months, it could be a year if we were being really specific about that. And literally we turned in our paperwork on a Thursday and Thursday afternoon we got the call. That's incredible, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was wild. And then, you know, and then like then the baby didn't end up coming to us until Monday and the communication wasn't great. So we didn't know I started my paternity leave with my job, but then I didn't know if the baby was coming. And then I was a wreck because I was convinced this was our kid. Like it was a nothing with me is ever not dramatic. So. <laughs> well, which leads to, uh, did you say dramatic or traumatic? <laughs> hey, both. Everything is dramatic and traumatic. It's just all yeah. one in the same. Yeah. So, uh, so beautiful Daisy comes into your lives. Yes. And then the individual who openly talks about not liking children for a long time, <laughs> except of course your own child, of course. Yeah. Decides yeah. to open a home daycare. Yes. That makes oh, sense. God. That I makes did, lots. That's that me. makes You're lots of sense. Me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here was the thinking. I knew that when the baby came to us, whenever she came, I was not going to want to leave, that I was going to want to work from home, be at home. And this was pre-pandemic. Like right now, work from home jobs are much more common. Back then, that wasn't a thing. Everybody wanted to work from home, but it wasn't really Mm -hmm. a thing. Right. And so in the 18 months before Daisy came, I spent all that time getting licensed to open a nursing, uh, uh, getting licensed to open a, a, a daycare, yep. you know, doing all the training, selling all the furniture, doing all the home visits. And then like 
you know, we literally got rid of all of our stuff and turned it into a daycare. And then Daisy came and, you know, we took a couple weeks, but then we're like, all right, now we're going to open the daycare. And I mean, I had been working part-time at a friend's daycare to get ready for it. I had taken all the classes. I had gotten licensed. We had had, you know, like parties in our home to show off. I mean, it was, we had done everything. All in. And then all the, yeah, all in. Then the, then the kids showed up on day one and it was mayhem. It was mayhem and chaos and me and Steve and screaming children and pooping babies. And like, I don't know what we were expecting. Like, of course that's what it was, but we were just somehow not prepared. Steve, of course, being the adult in the room was much more prepared than I was. Right. But you know, this was like, Steve wasn't even supposed to work at the daycare. He just like, he had finished his math degree and just hadn't gotten a job yet. So he was just kind of there. Yeah. And it was my show. And yes. I was miserable. <laughs> yes. Uh, the audacity of those little humans to I know. pee, poop, scream, I and know. cry, and be um, oppositional. Like, what? And no matter how much you talk to them about it, nothing changes. Do you know no, what I mean? No. They don't take the note. So hard-headed. So hard-headed. Um, so you had a good three-day run. Yep. And then, um, fortunately, air quotes, the building shuts you down. Well, what happened was on on Wednesday, I had a full-on panic attack, which I've never had before or since. Head in the freezer. Head in the freezer. Head in the freezer. Mm -hmm. Literally, it went from fetal position on the bed, and we had other workers working. It wasn't like I abandoned the kids. But it was like fetal position on the bed, then head in the freezer. And and what was going through my mind was like, this was my identity now. The only t-shirts I wore were the t-shirts that I had made with the <laughs> Hamilton Heights daycare on it and the phone number. I was so proud. I told all my friends. I couldn't understand why everybody wasn't like quitting their jobs and opening home daycares. Like you guys are a bunch of sucker idiots. Like I got it figured out. Like this is, it. this is it. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of like having that mental crisis of like, I hate this. I can't do this. And what am I going to do with my life now? Like I had worked hospitality jobs for 15 years before that. Am I going back to that? I like, could we even afford it? Steve didn't have a job yet. So that was, I love that. Yes. At the, at the, at the end of the day, it was just like, I was like, I hate this so much. I can't, I can't do it. And I made up a lie that the building was shutting us down for, um, for an insurance concern. And I wrote all the parents and I remember on Wednesday being like, and so on, like, can we fight it? Sure. But that'll take a long time and who knows where we'll all be. And so unfortunately this Friday will be our last half day. <laughs> like I couldn't even get through a full day on Friday. It was yeah. a nightmare. You did the right thing. You really did the yes. right thing. Thank um, you. We're just about to get to where your life changes in a very big way. And before yes. we go there, I actually want to go back to back to this theme of authenticity and meeting your husband, Steve, because when you were putting yourself out there, on social media and what sounds like contorting yourself into being someone you thought would be desirable. Yes. It was kind of a shit show. And then when your friend actually posted for you and you're like, I'm done, I'm not paying another subscription. Like this is ridiculous. And it sounds like she actually posted who you authentically were, which Steve was attracted to. 
That's, you know what? I've never thought about it exactly in those terms. And I think you're exactly right because I didn't read what she wrote. I was like, I don't care. Write whatever you want. And I'm not going to look at it because my subscription is going to expire in two days. So who cares? And I think you're absolutely right. Hmm. So again, people, the theme, be oneself. Try to yes. seek that authenticity. Because what had happened was I had done a year of Match.com. That was like my gift to myself for my 28th yep. birthday. And I wrote this profile that wasn't me at all, trying to talk like in the broiest terms. And I like to go hiking and give me a shout. and Like, not me at all. Mm-hmm. And so when my friend rewrote it, and she probably was like, my friend's a doofus, and he's kind of yeah. funny. And, you know, he likes to eat. So I hope you do, too. I'm sure that's what it was. And that bagged yeah. me a man in minutes. Yes. Yes. And a very fine, supportive man. It sounds like, I mean, such a supportive, collaborative relationship, which led to this idea of like, okay, now what the hell are we going to like, what are we going to do now? Right. He was finishing school at the, when he went back to school, he's finishing school. He has the business mind. You, of course, the theater kid, um, the, just the full theater kid is is just, is in there, right. Is in there. And all of a sudden, a podcast. You have this idea. You you have yeah. actually, not only an idea, but you have this um this thing that you like to do on the side. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I discovered listening to podcasts in like 2008, 2009. And there was this theater podcast that, that this man was making and he was interviewing big Broadway stars. It was kind of dry, but I was obsessed with it. And then he stopped making it. And I was like, well, clearly someone else is going to do that. And no one did. And that was when I was like, well, I guess I'll do it. I guess I will learn how to make a podcast, learn how to find Broadway stars and, you know, ask them to let me interview them. And, and, and I did, and I turned it into a podcast called theater people. And I it was like, the last thing I had time for was another hobby, right. but it, of all the things in my life, all the jobs that I had, and that was when I was trying to like, before Daisy came and I'm trying to study to make, open a daycare. The podcast was the thing that I loved the most. I was naturally pretty good at it. I mean, it was a very steep learning curve, but I was pretty good at it. Um, I, you know, I wasn't getting, making any money or getting paid for it, but I, I just loved it. And like, whenever things were hard, I would kind of just like lean into that. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, and that, that was sort of how the podcasting world started. And then, you know, what happened was after the daycare closed, I went back and I really wanted to be an executive assistant, as you mentioned earlier, which I had no business doing because I don't know anything about the Microsofts, as I call them, <laughs> yeah. Excel and, and Word or whatever. And I talked my way into this job. And then after like a couple of months, they fired me because my daughter, after hours, fed a bunch of very important files to the shredder <laughs> behind my back. And I was terrible at the job. And so... um you know, that I, yes, when I was just in a blind panic of like, what am I going to do now? Steve just said to me, he's like, you need to try to be a podcast. He just believed in me, but he also knew mm-hmm. I had had all the, like the daycare, the bartending, the executive assistant job. I was trying to be a round peg in a square hole or whatever the expression right. is. Like, I just, I wasn't doing the thing I was meant to do. And he said, you got to make a go of this podcasting. It's the only thing you love. We can afford for you to try it for six months or so. 
and just put yourself and he just knew that if I if I hit the ground running and put all my energy on something that I would make it work. He believed in me more than I did. Mm. And like mm. here we are. I'm now like sitting in my fancy podcast studio. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, we I mean amazing. We skipped several chapters, but oh, it's like sorry. No, no. No, I mean like it is amazing from that from that I some that idea you started something out of um interest and passion from yeah. your partner um, and spouse saying, Hey, go for it. Like giving you that yes. green light of support, not get out there yep. and get another job. And, but like, go for it, that belief and that faith. And then you just kept one thing kept going into another, right? It just kept, it, yes. started, it started to flow. So instead of you being this guy that I feel like I was going to say, like, we'll put your head in the oven, but really like the freezer, like just yes. like lean in, like, like the yes. full catastrophe as Zorba says, right? Like, yes. I, it feels like things just started to flow. My, my sister always said, when you're doing what you're meant to do, like the doors just open, you know? Mm -hmm. And like when things aren't working, then like the doors are, are slamming in your face, you know? And as soon as I, it was so funny, like there was no blueprint for what I did. Like, I don't know how, I, I do know how, I sort of went from making a theater podcast for fun to then like running a company, like a, a theater, uh, to then running a podcast network with, 15 employees. Like I could, I could walk you through the steps, but it is kind of like I had to find my path. And it was like every door kept opening, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm a, I'm a worker. I love working. I love working towards a goal. And I would, I would go to bed at eight o'clock every night. I'd get up at four in the morning and I would just like, here's the list of things for today. Here's what we're going to do to get to the next place. And I got lucky along the way, you know, my, my podcast partner, Jillian Pensavalli, who I make true crime obsessed with, we met because she made another theater podcast. And because my attitude is always, we, people need to support each other. I, when I saw that she was a new podcast creator in the theater space, I reached out to her and just said, I've been doing this for a long time. If you ever need any help, if I can ever help you, let me know. And she's like, let's have a drink. We met for a drink. One thing led to another and we just became really good friends. And then when Steve sort of set me free and was like, go for podcasting, I kind of knew that true crime was where people were becoming, it was go, it was going from a hobby to like maybe a real job. Mm -hmm. And she was really into true crime. And so was I, and we, our, our, our connection was so great. And I just thought like, I think it, I could do it with this person. I don't know exactly what it is, but it, you know, we, we gave it a shot and here we are seven, seven years later, yeah. you know? And it's both of our full-time jobs and it's, we employ people and we tour and we, you know, it's just, it's, it's been incredible. 200 million downloads. And yeah. um, I know from reading your story, you don't have a math brain. I do not have a math brain. So we no. connect on that. So the idea of thinking about 200 million, like yeah. you can't even wrap your mind around that number. I can't even see that on a scale. No. You know, and I remember the days early on when I was like so excited when we hit 5,000 downloads right. and then 10,000 downloads, you know? Right. And now it's like, you know, th three to five million downloads a month. And it's just crazy. Yes. It's wonderful. It's so wonderful. So, man, the story of uh, resilience, of leaning in and when did you, and failure, and like failure yeah. and failure and failure and failure, do you remember when you actually became aware of failure as a thing to lean into and embrace? Was was there a moment or is it just, as it, it's a cumulative yeah. effect? It's definitely, 
you know, for me, it's like you could substitute the word failure with trying. And mm-hmm. I think that that's because you can only fail if you try. You might also succeed, but like trying is sort of the beginning of it. And I just remember thinking that like, you know, it's about taking risks. It's about believing in yourself. It's about like really getting real with yourself and having the real conversation about what you want in life and how you're going to get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and when I was able to see that was probably like in my late twenties when I was like, I'd been single. I really wanted to be in a relationship. I really wanted, like, that was like the next big grown up thing I wanted. Mm-hmm. And rather than being lofty about it and waiting for Mr. A, you know, I was like, I'm going to get a match.com subscription. I'm going to go out with every guy that asks. I'm going to ask people out. And that was the first time that I like looked back and I was like, wow, mm-hmm. that worked. I found my husband. What's next? You know? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then I, then I thought I wanted this thing. I, I, you know, I thought I wanted to open a daycare and be like the daycare king of Northern Manhattan. And I threw myself into that wholeheartedly and that completely failed, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of like, all right, what are the lessons from this? Well, mm-hmm. I like working for myself. You know, I am a hard worker. I can make things happen. Even things that, that seem like they're not for me or something that I personally couldn't accomplish. I, I, I can do those things. So that it was when I did, you know, I think the ability to zoom out on my life and try to look down on it and see like when things have worked and when things haven't, they always go back to taking a risk of some kind. Mm -hmm. Yes. Nothing happens without taking a risk and getting outside the box. Yeah. Nothing happens. You know, and, and, you know, speaking of privilege, like we were talking about before, I always want to say, I, I understand that there is some privilege involved there that like, and for many, many years of my life, I had jobs I didn't like that paid the bills. And I mm-hmm. absolutely had to have those jobs, right. you know? Right. So like, not everybody has the luxury of being able to pursue their dream or, right. you know, like do, and I, I'm very aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just always like to say that whenever I talk about like taking risks, not everybody can. I totally get that. Right. That is fair and really important. Um, And I would say if it didn't work, you were going to go back to having a day job. I mean, at any time, if this all fell apart, I would be a bartender next month. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And and I got to tell you, I love being a bartender. I was right. saying this to my therapist like last week. I'm like, I could be a bartender again if I had to. That was a great gig. Yeah. I was good at it. I made right. money, you yeah. know? Yes. Yes. Okay. So few few more questions here. One is, looping back to parenting and Daisy, yeah. I'm curious how being a parent has changed you. I think about that question all the time. You know, I am, I mean, in all like, like the little ways, like I'm more patient, I'm kinder, my heart has grown three sizes, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think about the future a lot, you know, I think about like, it's definitely... I used to always have this, I used to always say that like my life didn't feel like a continuous movie. It felt like episodic television where I would kind of like every day was like a new episode. And now my life feels like a movie, you know, not, not, Mm. not in a grand way. I just mean that like one day flows into the next flows into the next. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm on a journey, you know, I, it's definitely made me more spiritual. I've always been spiritual, but you know, Daisy, obviously we adopted through foster care. And I say to her all the time, 
I believe that we were put on this earth at the same time to be together. Mm-hmm. We were, we were, and with Steve, the three of us. Mm-hmm. And I know when we die, Steve does not want to go to the planet with me and Daisy. Right. Like I want him to, I know he's right. going to, he's like, I don't know if I can do eternity with you, but <laughs> life is fine. Yes. Um, but you know, I, I definitely, you know, think in those terms. I, my, my brain mm-hmm. has expanded so much. Mm. I'm much less um, self-centered, mm-hmm. which is to say I'm still kind of self-centered. Like I, you know, I, I very much see my role in our family as being the one that's out there, you know, kind of being the entrepreneur, making mm-hmm. sure that the, the, you know, the business of us is, is I'm work. I work all the time, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I do see that as my role, but I, I'm doing it for them. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love it, but I, I'm doing it for them. I, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't feel alone on the planet like you can. Yeah. I feel like a part of a unit, which is awesome. just gives me confidence and freedom mm-hmm. and, you know, the ability to just keep mm-hmm. going. Yeah. Part of something larger and meaningful. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm glad you brought up the spirituality aspect because you, you wrote in the book, like you absolutely knew, even though you were going into a foster adopt situation where a high percentage of the kids go back to their family yep. of origin, you you, yep. you said you like you knew in that moment that you were going to get a child. And then within 24 hours, when it's supposed to take months, there's yep. Daisy. So things clearly aligned and uh, yeah. Daisy saw her opportunity. Yeah, I isn't that wild because yeah. I think that like there was a time Steve and I moved to Boston and we were going to live in Boston for forever and I mean I I have definitely thought back on the timelines, you know, mm-hmm. about how like the timeline of Daisy's birth and the timeline of us doing our 10 week foster, you know, to adopt program and getting licensed and turning myself in that Thursday. What if I had waited till Friday? Who knows where she would have gone. Yeah. You know, yeah. that it was I believe in fate. I believe it was all meant to be awesome. Awesome. What do you hope people get from your book? You know, it's so I've been hearing a lot from our listeners. It's so funny. People have little catastrophes every single day. <laughs> this one person sent me a message the other day that she was on a Zoom call with like all of her bosses and they were on a break and she took a call and was talking about how all of her bosses were assholes and she wasn't on mute. <laughs> and she was just so mortified and she was like a week ago this would have destroyed me but mm. i i'm i'm just trying to think of it as just a failure that i'm going to learn something from nice. i've gotten a nice. handful of those stories in the last couple of weeks mm. that people are just i think people are taking my experience it my experience yeah. and and saying like applying it to their lives the way i've done so many times with other people's books yes. or other people's podcasts like yes. if my if my stories make you laugh, that's all I want. Mm-hmm. But if they make you laugh and they also give you a little, like let you be a little bit easier on yourself yeah. because I've learned to be a little bit easier on myself, yeah. that would be the greatest gift. And you know, that th- had both of those effects on me. The laughter. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and just the inspiration, really, Patrick, of go for it. Don't take yourself so seriously, like lean in and just keep going. Even if you figuratively or literally walk through a glass door, just in Barcelona, just just keep going. Just keep going. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's time for the parent footprint moment question, which I know you've been waiting for. Here we go. 
Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your child's, and or those you love. All right. So a couple of months ago, my whole family was on vacation. We all, my my husband and me, both of my sisters and their kids all went to Hawaii for 10 days. It was like this big, we could never have afforded that when we were kids. It was like so amazing to be able to take all of our kids and give them this great trip. And it was wonderful. On the second to last day there, we were all at the beach and we were, we had gone on this really long beach walk and we were coming back to the car and we were kind of divided up into groups. And I was with my older sister and my daughter and my younger sister's son were with us. And so they were walking behind us. It was kind of a crowded beach. And I remember I kept saying to both of them, like, be in front of us. You guys have to be in front of us so we can see you. And so they moved in front of us and they're, we're all walking. It's a long line of my family, all just walking. And when we got to the part of the beach where we, we knew we had to turn to go to the parking lot, Daisy was gone. Oh, and my husband had been way in front and had gone to the car. And I I turned and I, I saw my older sister, my younger sister, and both of their kids. And no Daisy, knowing that Steve had gotten, was five minutes in front of us. So I, I immediately just started like shouting like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm looking down the beach and there's nothing. And so one of my nephews ran to the car because I'm like, she must be with Steve. I don't know how, but she must be with Steve. She wasn't. And he came back and she, and he said no. And I grabbed my heart mm. and fell onto the beach. So instantly, I was surrounded mm. by, and I'm just going to say mothers. It was yes. like, like 15 women, they all saw what was happening. They all jumped up. And it was, they, they didn't ask any questions other than how old is she and what is she wearing? Mm. Oh, and I, said, I, got, I got the chills. I got the chills. I mean, yeah, yeah. this is... I, yeah. This is like the worst moment of my life. Yeah. The, my, ne my, one of my, like my 15 year old nephew took off running down the beach and everyone's look, everyone's looking in the water. I didn't think she was in the water. This went on for about 45 seconds, which sounds like not a lot of time, mm -hmm. but I, be, especially because of what I do for a living, all I could think yeah. about was if we don't find her in the next 15 minutes, I'm never seeing her again. Wow. And uh, and I'm, and I literally, I'm looking at all the people on the beach thinking you're all witnesses, all of you, like with your camera, like nobody can. And I'm screaming, like, we have to call the police. I had my hand over my heart. One of the mothers was like calling for a doctor because I, she thought I was having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Oh God, wow. this is a hard story to tell. Yeah. Um, but, and then we called down to my nephew and he could, he did she wasn't there. And so about 45 to 60 seconds later, he came running back and he had her Wow! and she had just wandered down. Like she, she just hadn't stopped. And, and none of us had noticed that mm -hmm. she had just kept going. Mm. And it just, for whatever reason, it took us that long to find her. So the point is like that 45 seconds where I really, I really thought she was gone. Mm. You know, it, it, it just made me, realize how precious every moment is, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to think about 
you know, like the dumb things about like how often when we come home at the end of a long day, do we just let her go to the iPad and we go to the TV and that's how we finish out our night. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I want to play a game. I want to do one thing Mm. that like we do, like we spend time together, like maybe like tomorrow night we'll read an extra book at bedtime and not try to rush through it or just be more patient with her or like we got her a dog. We don't like dogs. We've been, we've been resisting it for years, Yeah, but she doesn't have any brothers or sisters. And we were like, she needs it. She wants it. We got her a dog. I think because of that moment. Mm. And you know, it was just a very sobering moment of really realizing how precious time is. I know. Wow. Wow. I know. I haven't told that story in a minute. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing it with us because it is uh, multiple meanings, uh, lessons in there for us to to keep an eye on our kids because things happen so quickly, Mm -hmm. so quickly. And you do know from your line of work, bad stuff happens all too often. And most importantly, how precious the moments are. Yeah. 100%. Enjoy the moments. Well, thank you for sharing that terrifying and horrific experience, which fortunately has a really good ending and is going to enhance your life. Are these, the answers to that question, are they usually very uplifting? Uh, They're all over the place. No, they're all, they're all real. They're all just like, they're all totally real. So um, this goes right in that very real category and a good message for all of us. Good for all of us. Patrick, this is so fun. I'm just so I'm just so happy for you and your life and what oh, what's happening and uh, feeling you. now that I've you know I am a witness of your life, having read about it. <laughs> I just feel I feel like I know you and I'm happy for you and I'm proud of you. And thank um, you. I was gonna say um, I have to say the name of your book where you could tell people to get it because just saying the whole title makes me smile. Yeah. <laughs> right? It just it's so good. So every yes. so Patrick, tell everyone where they can get. Failure is not, not an option. How the chubby gay son of a Jesus-obsessed lesbian found love, family, and podcast success, and a whole bunch of other stuff. (laughs) So you can get it anywhere you get your books. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, they have it in many bookstores. The one thing I will say, I have taken one of the chapters, chapter two, um, which is all about my high school drama club drama and my like first love and I've turned it into a show that I that I tour with. So if you want to come out and see me on the road, it's re- it's a really 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 fun night. Um, you can go to patrickfails.com, click on the See Patrick Live link, um, and you can get tickets to the show there. I'm I'm doing a bunch of dates in December. I'm going to be in Phoenix, Toronto, and Pittsburgh, and then we're announcing a whole other leg of the tour pretty soon. And it's great. I did watch the video and it is so where you check out on your website and yes, it's just fun hearing your voice, like say the words. It, it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's the whole, <laughs> the whole experience. Um, yes. Also, you just said Patrick fails and I, I just, I just had a ping I'm going to share with you and anyone who's listening future children's books. Patrick fails series, how to help kids lean into failure and take risks. That's have, a great idea. I just saw the like the animation, the illustration of little Patrick yes. through life failing to teach lessons and brush yourself off and keep on moving. That is a really, really good idea. May I steal that? Yes, we're expanding the empire right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you may. Okay. Yeah, it's your book. It's your story. Thank so you. yes, this oh my is goodness. For you. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay. And so uh TCO, tell everyone about TCO and everything involved. 
Yep, True Crime Obsessed is the podcast I make with Jillian Penzavalli. We recap true crime documentaries, and we do it with humor and empathy and heart and sass. Um, we used to call it a true crime comedy podcast. We don't anymore. Even though there's still humor, the humor is never at the expense of the victims or the crime. It's always just about our rage at how these things continue to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we have over 400 episodes. We've been making it for seven years now. Um, and, you know, we, we we also go on tour. We have our fan convention called Obsessed Fest, which uh, we're doing in Dallas this year from October 20th to the 22nd. You can get all of the information for everything and you can find it uh, wherever you get your podcasts. But you can go to truecrimeobsessed.com. Awesome. So much good stuff and so much more good stuff coming. I know because you are a creative mind and a creative mind <laughs> must keep creating. They must yes. keep creating. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, everyone, that unfortunately is the end of a fun, inspiring and wise conversation with Patrick Hines. Go check out the book. I promise you, you will love it. Thank you for listening. Please share this episode with everyone you think needs to hear it. Thanks for being a part of our community. Thank you for your five star reviews. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. Be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.